1: Welcome to this special live recording of the Seneca Podcast coming to you from Manhattan. Hello, New York. Yes. The Seneca Podcast is part of the China Project, and tonight we kick off the China Project's next China conference. So we are all super excited, as I hope all of you are. I hope that you will be in attendance tomorrow at our conference. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am joined of course by Jimmy, sometimes known, rarely, by his English name, Jeremy Goldcorn, who is fresh off his most recent failed campaign to become Speaker of the House of Representatives <laughs> of the United States. Jeremy Goldgorn, greet the people, won't you?
2: Hello, people. It's
1: really lovely to be here in New York uh,
2: and to be back on Seneca. It's been a while since I've been on the show. Um, despite my friend Kaiser's ridiculous introduction, because I'm not trying to become Speaker of the House. I'm actually up here in New York to replace George Santos as a re- representative <laughs> for New York's third congressional district.
1: Well, look, Jeremy, if, if that's the case, you're going to have to stop lying about your bio the way that Santos did. I mean, look, I'm going to come clean. He was never actually a champion Mexican wrestler who, who, who was in the ring under the name El Maíz Dorado. That never really happened. But I know you've, 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 you've eaten, dined out a lot I on a story, out on so it's just terrible. Okay, anyway, enough of this nonsense. Um, let's, let's talk about something very serious here. Um, I think that the issue that probably has the lowest ratio of coverage to consequence out there right now is China and the global south. Not enough coverage, and enormous consequence. I mean, this is one of the most important things simply happening in the world right now. Um, so what I want I think that, that you know there are so many ways in which we can we can sort of try to address this gap, uh, and, and you know, tonight is really sort of aimed at, at doing that. But it, it's really you know the impact on the wider world, I mean, it, it really is China and the global South. China and its relationship with the countries of Southeast Asia, of Africa especially, of Latin America, and South Asia.
2: And I would actually say that it's not just China's relationship that is undercovered by the media, Uh, China's relationship with the global south. It's just the global south generally. The war in Sudan has killed more than 9,000 people by conservative estimates, and the Tigray War in Ethiopia from 2020 to 2022 killed by official Ethiopian government Um, numbers, 80 to 100,000, but there's credible research that suggests that the number is north of 600,000 non-combatant civilians dead. Um, But you don't see stories about those numbers on the front page of the New York Times, and American college students and European college students aren't marching to protest at those deaths. Um, So this podcast aims to be something of a corrective and uh, talk uh, particularly about the global south. And obviously, because with the China Project, it's going to be China's involvement. And we have the best possible guests for it. Maria uh, Repnikova is an associate professor in global communications at Georgia State University. She's also a Wilson China Fellow this year and has been on our show many times to talk about everything from investigative journalism in China Uh, to the Chinese response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Her recent work focuses on Chinese soft power and public diplomacy in Africa. Maria, welcome back to Seneca,
1: and great to see you.
3: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: We are also joined by Eric Olander, who is co-founder of the China Global South Project and co-host of not one, but two of my favorite podcasts, simply of all, the China in Africa podcast and the China Global South podcast, which if you are not listening to those, those podcasts and if you're not subscribing to their best-in-class newsletter about China's relationship with the China and the, glo- with the Global South, you are doing yourself an enormous disservice. You need to, to correct that right away because really I think not just to understand the relationship with the Global South, but to understand China's foreign policy, to understand what China wants to do in the world, you really, really need to vote up on, on this. It's, it's, uh, I, I can't impress upon you more. So do yourself a favor and sign up. Meanwhile, Eric Olander, welcome back to Seneca. It's really great to have you here in New York and, and back on the show. It's fantastic to be here and to be in
4: person between the rock stars here. I mean, uh, this is a dream come true. A listener since 2010, since you guys started. Likewise. It feels like the Beatles are back together now
1: today, you know. <laughs> yeah. A lot of getting the bands back together. This very, that's, right. that's
2: very sweet, Eric. <laughs>
1: So I want to uh, jump right in and talk about what I think is like, really, I mean, when it comes to China and the globe, South, the biggest issue before us today is is that is what the geostrategic landscape looks like right now in the aftermath, not just of the February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also the October seventh Hamas attacks on Israel that took place earlier this year. Uh, I think that you know you look at China's professed neutrality in both of those conflicts, it's drawn, not surprisingly, an awful lot of fire in the Western media, in the, the global North, the media has um, been very blistering in its criticism, but that contrasts strongly with a very different reaction that China's position has, has garnered it across much of, not all of, but the global South. So two parts of, to this first, and I'd love to hear from both of you on this. First, where do things stand? If we were to take a sort of detached, dispassionate view from outer space and look at the geostrategic l- landscape right now, what does that look like? And secondly, what is the new configuration? Secondly, what does the landscape look like specifically from the point of view of Beijing? In other words, when Xi Jinping looks about him in the world, does he say, you know, there's chaos under heaven, all is good? Uh, that, what, what does he think? Um, I mean, because, you know, it it looks like he's sort of set to pluck some low-hanging fruit to let the U.S. do the work of alienating many developing countries just by its full backing of Israel. Um, So, Maria, why don't we start with you, and then we'll go over to Eric for his perspective on this. So two parts to that question.
3: Well, it's a very long question, but I think I'll just talk a little bit about the uh, position that China has taken when it comes to both the war... Uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, and uh, the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. And it seems like there are some similarities in the position. This so-called pro-Western neutrality appears to be present in both of those contexts, and there's a lot of debate as to the extent to which that's actually going to be in China's favor in the long term. So for now, we're seeing the commentaries all about right, peace and peacemaking, but at the same time, not quite taking a stand right, in either of those uh, very contentious uh, conflicts and issues. And I think I just want to highlight a few ways in which this is also a potential cost or uh, a challenge for China um, in an ongoing moment, but also in the future. And one thing I wanted to highlight is the escalation of domestic nationalism that we see on social media, right in China, and the different sentiments that come out that are very difficult to contain. So for example, at the moment there's a huge outflow of anti-Semitism on Chinese web, right, on Weibo. Um, before that, with the war, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, a huge pro-Russia sentiment, but often pushing for invasion of Taiwan. So a lot of very heart-stricken sentiments that are difficult to kind of censor in real time, and basically Chinese society is reacting to this neutrality in its own way, sometimes galvanized to express sentiments that I think the state doesn't always support or attempts to regulate. So that's one thing I wanted to, to note. And the other thing is about losing trust from various countries. Um, around the world, but maybe gaining trust from others. So for example, in the case of Russia-Ukraine, the trust that China is losing, I think is affecting Eastern Europe in particular, Uh, countries like the Baltics, where I come from, Latvia, um, other countries across that, you know, very much distrust Russia at this point, uh, or anti Russia. They don't really trust China as a result of that. So I think building back up that trust uh, and those kind of relationships is gonna take a very long time. So that's something that to consider as well when we think about China's reactions. But at the same time, of course, it may appeal, a sentiment of neutrality may appeal to many countries that do take a similar stance so that have a very strong anti-Western leaning, which is a big part of Global South. And we see this in the current conflict, a lot of Arab countries, you know, appealing back and forth uh, when it comes to the sentiment uh, that speaks to the Palestinian cause. And China is really emphasizing that. I was quite surprised by just how much coverage it's getting on Chinese media and Chinese ambassadors tweeting about it across Global South. It seems like that sentiment in some ways could be effective in favor of China. Mm.
1: Eric, When Xi Jinping looks out his window, does he say the situation is good or this is a curse?
4: I tend to think that when Xi looks out his window and looks at the landscape today, he likes what he sees. He sees the United States going flashback to the 1980s where we are getting burdened down in wars in the Middle East and obsessed with Russia. Let's remember that China's advance in the global south happened in the early 2000s when the United States was distracted with Iraq and Afghanistan. And their real, you know, their encroach into Africa happened because the Europeans, their main priority with Africa is to keep the black and brown people on their side of the Mediterranean. Immigration is the only thing that matters right now in Europe when it comes to Africa. The United States looks at Africa today as, and it has for the past 25 years, it has not had one single innovative policy since PEPFAR in Africa, not one in 25 years. And it looks at Africa as a basket case, a source of terrorism, S-hole countries. It looks at it as visa restrictions. It looks at it as a destination for aid. So China rolls up and says, we want to do trade. We want to do business. We don't come with the same historical baggage as those guys do. And what we are confronted with today is a battle of ideas that we don't know we're fighting. I was recently in a closed-door session with a bunch of high-level academics in Washington. And this one professor, after I spoke, said, with all due respect to the speaker, me, Zimbabwe is not important today, he said discondescendingly. He said, today we're in an era of great power competition between China, Europe, and the United States. That's it. And I said to him, I said, sir, with all due respect, I'm very glad you weren't in the government during the first Cold War, because we would have lost. Because the first Cold War was a war of ideas. It was not a war of missiles, because at the end of the day, we both had the same number of missiles. It was a war of ideas. I said, whatever this thing we're in today, whether it's a Cold War 2.0, whether it's a great power competition, at the end of the day, it's a war of ideas. It's a battle of ideas. And our main thing, and I'll just do this last point, is that when Secretary Blinken goes to Africa and goes to Latin America and says, we want to preserve the rules-based order, what does that mean? That's a backwards-looking vision. That is saying, we want to preserve the way it was. And if you're sitting at the bottom of the pyramid, that rules-based order has done nothing for you. China rolls up and says, we want BRICS. we want new development bank, we want trade, we want free trade, we want more agricultural products, we want to bring Belt and Road to you. It's a forward-looking vision. And in Africa, it's a continent of teenagers. They want
1: that forward-looking vision. Well, well you've just said, Eric, Though I mean, that was true before February 24, 2022. That was true before October 7th. What has, uh, have these two conflicts done to change that situation? has it just accentuated the differences? What is that, what are the the conflicts done? In many ways,
4: the BRICS, and I know we're gonna get to BRICS, and I'll talk about it in more detail, but the BRICS summit is about grievance. And we, in the United States, understand grievance-based politics really, really well. Our country's ripping each other apart because of grievance-based politics. Europe is ripping each other apart on grievance-based politics. But yet, when we look out into the rest of the world, we don't see and understand that grievance. BRICS is a nothing organization. It has no secretariat. The only accomplishment it has to its name is a mid-level development bank that hasn't really done that much. But what it's done is channeled grievance. And that's really powerful. And the same way that Hillary Clinton dismissed the deplorables, we dismiss that grievance at our peril as well, not listening to it. So today, that grievance is really powerful. And that's where we are today, right now.
2: May I ask? Um, there's a possibly apocryphal story about it. I think it's supposed to be a Kenyan uh, government official who has this line about, you know, when I think he's supposedly talking to a British, visiting Br- British dignitary. And he says, When Westerners come, we get a lecture. When the Chinese come, we get a hospital and a train, you know, <laughs> a, a railway. Which is airport. a BS line, by the way.
4: It's not. Uh, it's a it's, complete it's an BS apocryphal line. story, right? Uh, it's but, it's but become it's a cliche now.
2: But, but it's a, a B- great story because it, it isn't... Uh, but So my, my question is, you're talking about a war of ideas, but isn't it more a, uh, a very practical issue that China ha- did invest a lot of money in various developing Let, Let's be very
4: careful here. The word invest is a very particular word. China lent a lot of money, That's a different than an investment. It also, that whole narrative of the Americans show up with bombs, the Chinese show up with bridges, uh, eliminates the fact that the United States today spends $11 billion a year on humanitarian programs. In Africa, China spends barely anything. So tens of millions of Africans are alive today because of antiretroviral AIDS medications that they don't get any credit for. So that's, a, that's an overly simplistic narrative that I think a lot of people like to do to showcase the differences between the two. There is some truth to it, though. Some people will say, and this is the one that I hear, which is more accurate, in the time that it takes to negotiate a US aid initiative, the Chinese have already built the road. That one, I think, is better and more accurate. We're so bureaucratic, we're so arrogant in our process, and the Chinese are so much more pragmatic. That, I think, is the relevance.
2: So, Maria, ca- can we turn back to um, uh, g- Israel and Gaza? You know, there's a lot of anti-Westernism uncorked by uh, the events that are unfolding in Gaza right now. And you know, it's a lot of it uh, t- t- taps into, Eric, grievance-based politics. Um, but surely it's not all good for China. Uh, their efforts to you know, play peacemaker in the Middle East and with uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, this can't be good for that, right?
3: Well, it compromises its long-standing efforts at making real change in the region as well. So I think some of it is symbolic gains, for example, just, again, the grievance politics and appealing to certain sentiments, but the real changes when it comes to uh, peacemaking are not as clear-cut anymore, I think, for anyone, but including China. So the real kind of strides towards... uh, constructive constructive change, I think, are further and further away, but the symbolic gains of just getting some kind of uh, alliances based on narratives or anti-Western sentiments, that seems to be happening, but how deep those alliances are, I think that's a bit questionable. Um, And just to go back to also Eric's point about this, you know, the example you brought up about, kind of roads and bridges versus nothing, or, you know, it's kind of the comparison between China and the U.S., I think part of it is also about branding and visibility, right? So it's what's visible, what's not visible. I mean, the roads and bridges, of course, are very visible, and that's what the U.S. embassies often bring up. They're like, we're not visible. We try our best to brand ourselves, but a lot of these initiatives are just not visible to to, uh, local communities, or especially to elites. So local communities might know about it, but they're not branded in the media. There are no big signs around those projects, whereas Chinese projects are extremely visible. They're visceral. So everybody knows the Chinese Present, but those initiatives that Eric mentioned, many others, are happening at the very on-the-ground level and grassroots level. But they're not always branded, so that's something that the U.S. struggles with uh, in some to some degree, and I'm that's not sure amazing. what the solution is. America
2: struggling with branding, that's and how China getting it right, isn't it? You
1: know, a lot of our conversation yeah. to follow is going to be all about the narrative, the discourse war, about the, the struggle for discourse power in the global south. And so I don't want to anticipate too much of that just yet. I do want to share with you the the, uh, the little parable he talked about about uh, the Kenyan minister or whatever talking about how when the Chinese show up, uh, we get a hospital. When the Americans show up, we get you know we, we get a lecture. Uh, somebody wrote that on Twitter once, and then there was a response to it by somebody who was you know obviously a white male who wrote, uh, "Well, you know that hospital comes with strings attached. You should really be careful what you write." Wrote. And the Wihi Kenyan who wrote the uh, original post wrote wrote. Here comes the lecture. <laughs> so uh, that, was, that was that was pretty good. Um, Maria, I want to stay with you, though. I want to ask you, um, because you wrote, after February 24th, a really terrific piece for The Atlantic, if, if I recall. It was for the Atlantic, uh, right, an op-ed, where you made the the case, and I think correctly, that the um, Chinese public's position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I think, to some extent, the Chinese leadership's position on, and uh, elite's positions on the Chinese, uh, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine were not really about Russia or about Ukraine, but about who? About the United States, right? It was ultimately about the United States. I'm wondering if that's the same dynamic we're seeing right now when it comes to Chinese public opinion on the Israeli-Palestinian issue.
3: I think a lot of it still stands because a lot of the sentiments are aimed at um, delegitimizing Western positions on this war, and in particular the US positions of supporting Israel without any essential preconditions and oftentimes overlooking, you know the horrendous civilian deaths that are happening every day in Gaza, and that's something that has been raised multiple times uh, on Chinese social media accounts and so forth, and Chinese public is really invoking that. They're constantly retweeting that, but those images also appear on state media, so there's often synergy between state media discourse or state media messaging, and of course, social media narratives that kind of come together, and I think the same thing happened during Russia's invasion um, of Ukraine, but of course, it's it's interesting. We think about Russia-China relations. That it's easy to see the two countries as converging and as being this long time and uh, never-ending allies. But if it's more about the West, then you have to question how deep is this friendship, or you know how significant is it, and you know what is what is it to it beyond that. Uh, that's something that I often think about.
1: Yeah,
4: yeah, fantastic. But I think to boil it down only to the United States is oversimplifying it. That sure. the, the Chinese now have significant interest in the Middle East that extend beyond geopolitics. Saudi Arabia is the largest energy provider. They've done two major Qatar gas deals. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the largest recipient of Belt and Road money now, Telecom, Green. Uh, so their interest in across the Persian Gulf and the Middle East now are, are even beyond that of competing with the United States. And I think it's important to have that nuance in that as well.
2: Can I just uh, go back to something that you raised, Maria, the anti-Semitism on social media on China right now. W- w- what do you make of it? And I'd like to ask both of you. Uh, you know, Being a fellow Latvian Jew, I think you should r- respond to that. But um, uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. like, why, why is it happening? Why aren't the censors kicking in?
3: It's a really tough question, actually. Uh, my mom was just asking about it today. She's like, "I don't understand how, you know, where it comes from. Because what's the experience with, you know, the Jewish community so small? Like, how, how, where is it emerging from?" And I guess it's more personal, it's kind of a, a sharing than something that's very analytical. But you know, as a, as a Jew, Jewish person uh, that lived in China for a long time, I found that there's a strong, or there used to be a very strong, kind of focus on exotifying kind of a Jewishness, a Jewish identity. So it was, you know, when I was, when I would share that I'm Jewish, you know, that there were, there were a lot of uh, exclamations and enthusiasm. What are your secrets? Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> <all laughs> like, your <laughs> <like laughs> you know. Never told me. So it's like, okay, <laughs> you know. These
2: sections at Chinese bookstores. Books, there was books exactly, on the secrets yeah, secret and I actually I met a education. writer who right.
3: wrote one of those books once, yeah. and uh, he was, you know, telling me name after name of all the famous Jews, right, and <laughs> I didn't know the Chinese names, actually, for all the names he was listing, so it was very awkward, but then he offered me free lodging and food, and, you know, it was just like, I was this big star. Even of course I wasn't in the <laughs> book. But it was this kind of exotified sentiment, and I think when I explain it to some Chinese friends and colleagues that that's actually not comforting, it's, there's something distressing about that um, as well, because it can e- quickly, quickly flip onto the other side of kind of the anti-Semitic yeah. side as well. There's something very you know, disconcerting when there's so much emphasis placed on this exotic identity of, of uh, Jewishness or Jewish yeah. identity. So that's something I've been kind of thinking about, just my own experience, and then how things have shifted, how quickly they shifted. It just makes me wonder what was that exotic, Kind of significance in the first place. What does this really mean? Because oftentimes, you know, scholars of race they talk about also how exotification is part of racism as well. So it's just that's something I've been kind of pondering. But of course, I don't have you know um, clear, thoughtful answers yet because we're just observing it in real time. So I'm just kind of I have
1: about I it. have my theories, but I want to hear what Eric has to say about this. We were talking about this just the other day. Yeah. So uh,
4: first of all, I think to single out the Chinese for it, it, the, the kind of racism that we're seeing on social media is disingenuous because just look at our it's own. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Right. Now, the Chinese have the ability to censor, and they exercise that, 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 that discipline when the Israeli, uh, I think it was the relative of the Israeli diplomat, was attacked, and that did not make it into China. So they, when, when it's in their interest, they'll do this. We saw the same thing uh, during COVID and the anti-black racism as well, and they didn't censor that either, and they let that flourish. And there was a lot of surprise over that as well. So they don't do this in part because if it doesn't directly impact them, and I think that's where the censorship rules come in, and that's why we saw the, the censorship of the attack, but we did not see, or we don't see right now, the censorship there. So, uh, but I think, again, our country is awash in the same type of toxic Discussion as well, too. And not, and it's and not, I not I a what aboutism. Like it's just to say that this is a bigger
1: problem than just China. I feel like a lot of it actually seems to originate from America. I mean, I, whether we're talking about anti black racism, whether we're talking about Islamophobia, which was also something that we always say is rampant in China. Yeah, there, there's a certain exactly. irony here that for
4: a country that is so resistant to Western framings and narratives that they adopt so much of the toxic narratives about uh, black people yeah, exactly. and also like, right. about Jews and others. They just bring it lock, stock, and barreled over. Exactly, I mean, you see, and that there's just a certain irony
1: there that we're seeing there. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on from this and, and talk a little bit about Xi Jinping's signature Belt and Road Initiative, which, of course, celebrates its 10th anniversary right now. We know that the the third Belt and Road Forum was held just last month in October, mid October in Beijing. Um, let's let's do a little bit of a sort of scorecard for how did Beijing fare during that? How well attended was it how what 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 were the sort of sentiments that came out of it eric you watched this very closely. that's right
4: so we had 24 liters if you want to measure it number for number 24 liters at this year's forum that's down from 37 in 2017 so one of the things you saw on the family photo was no white people so the europeans are gone the americans are gone the observers are gone The Middle Easterners were not there, by the way. So it was uh, five of the uh, twenty. About about you know a quarter of the attendees were from Africa. Uh, So so there was a large, rather large African delegation that was there. Um, I'm not sure that's the best metric to measure it by, though. Um, The delegations are very large. The enthusiasm for the Belt and Road in much of Africa, Asia, including in where I live in Vietnam. Uh, is is quite high and in terms of investment. And Belt and Road is a very broad concept. So even countries who are not part of the Belt and Road still hope to benefit from it. Uh, so overall, um, I think enthusiasm for it was quite high. Hmm. Um, again, not a lot of people are talking about bringing in real money. The United States and Europe have their initiatives, the PGII initiative from the United States and the Global Gateway. I think there's a wait-and-see attitude on that. The Chinese have a track record of bringing in I don't know, is it 600 billion? Is it 700 billion? Who knows what the real number is? But people have tangible proof points of what the Chinese have done over the past 10 years. Sure. The United States and Europe are still to be determined if they can deliver on that.
2: So can we talk about, maybe I can ask you, Maria, uh, in, in, so not in terms of the optics at the Belt and Road Forum, but in terms of projects that can be counted as successes, Belt and Road projects, what are some of the countries, you'd say, where there has been uh, a, a win for China and for well, the... A Andrew Andrew. Win. win a win-win. It's only win-win. Sorry, only win-win.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, there's a, well, there's a couple of things about the BRI, you know, in terms of its shifts. I think we, ha- we can talk about a little bit how uh, it's turning into more smaller-scale projects now. So a lot of the emphasis of the of the forum was on greener BRI, small and beautiful, right? All those nice phrases. So kind of smaller scale, less loans. So the loans are really slowing down. So it's really interesting how those large-scale, magnificent, kind of huge uh, BRI projects are actually shrinking. Um, so they they have some things. Of course, many projects have been built, uh, but they're also have caused a lot of loan and debt distress. So, you know, we can f- debate to what extent we have debt trap diplomacy, you know, how useful that framing is. I think it's not very useful, right? And Eric, of course, will jump on me now. But uh, in terms of just the dis- debt distress and the fact that He actually
2: got <laughs> when okay. you said yeah, death, I debt was, trap. know. He was
3: getting very serious. <laughs> I can tell. Um, y- the, the consequences, right, of these uh, mega projects and uh, just from the field work that I've done, for instance, in Ethiopia, some of those projects are waning in terms of just how they're functioning. Uh, the big light rail project all across Addis Ababa, you know, half, more than half the trains are no longer are working, they're not operational. Uh, so about 10 out of 50 are working at the moment. So just, it just kind of gives you the, the trajectory of the, you know, this project, it's very interesting. It starts out with this big, big kind of uh, mega event and signage and building, but then you know, when we trace them, we see that not all of them kind of survive or last, uh, and the bureau that used to handle them has also shrunk. So things are really transforming on the ground. So that's just something I wanted to, um, to add. So it's a bit difficult to kind of count the successes. I mean, I think in terms of leaders showing up and how many countries joined over the years, those matrix are high. Uh, a number of mega projects have been built but then we have to think about debt distress we have to think about those projects themselves in terms of their sustainability and of course the recent shift of going smaller and greener and so forth it's also an interesting sign in terms of where things are going um, and who's going to be leading that kind of investment is it going to be more private sector versus state uh, major state-owned firms you know what are going to be the actors involved in those bri projects uh, and in this brand but i think the brand itself is not going away it's clearly going to be the brand of xi jinping for uh, the time to come,
1: Maria. Let's stay with you here and and go all the way to you know that other side of the ledger. What are some of the more conspicuous failures and the the, the the sort of places where Bri Bri has really stumbled, where it's uh, really uh, ang- caused a lot of popular anger or even elite re- resentment? What are some of the, the really bad cases?
3: Well, I guess I don't think about it in terms of cases. I often think about it in terms of elites versus uh, public or popular opinion. And those are the things that I think, those are the contrasts that are worth drawing. So the elites who sign on to those projects, and if you look at the leaders who attended the forum, they'll say only positive things, right? They're going to praise BRI, they're going to praise Xi Jinping, they're going to praise everything that's happening. But when you look at the level below that, or if you talk to civil society activists or um, members of just the public itself, there's often a lot of grievance that doesn't get communicated to the media or to state media or to major media outlets. So I think that's the contrast that I often just observe in my research is that the elite level can be quite complementary. They hope to get more deals and more, you know, contracts and so forth. But the popular level can have a lot of grievances about just how these things work or don't work when it comes to those projects and what they're going to cost the future generations.
1: But specifically, in what countries do we see the sort of balance of grievance outweighing the sort of beneficiation or whatever from it?
3: Well, I think overall across Africa, there's been a very positive response. If you look at kind of the overarching trends and public opinion and so forth, overall it seems like, you know, in that case, we see a more positive response. But again, if you look below the surface, it's very mixed. So that's why public opinion polls can be kind of a little tricky. But I think in Southeast Asia, there's been more pushback. Central Asia has seen massive protests against some of these projects. Sure. So it's really kind of case by case, but um, I don't focus on kind of large-scale cases, so it's hard for me to generalize all of them together.
1: Okay, fair enough.
2: Uh, just on staying on that theme, um, Eric, uh, you, you know, you, you spoke of how you know China not giving money; it's lending money, so that's dangerous. Uh, f- to borrow money, I mean, borrowing money is yeah, always dangerous. Yeah, but, uh, but it's super important, though. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, but as someone with a mortgage, like the bank has right. control over me, right? It's not nice, you know. Uh, I need to pay that off, you know. It's not, right. no, not good. Um, so, I mean, uh, when combined with possible popular resentment against China, I mean, how would you? Uh, rate the risk of having problems coming out of a combination possibly of debt plus an unhappy local population? Well, let's be very
4: clear here Zambia did not default on a Chinese loan. Zambia defaulted on a $42.5 million Eurobond coupon. Sri Lanka was not having problems with its Chinese debt. Sri Lanka fell behind on its Eurobond debt. Ghana fell behind on its Eurobond debt. When we look at the total amount of Chinese debt in Africa, people are shocked to hear that it accounts for just 12% of the total, 12. When we look at the interest rates on Chinese debt in Africa compared to the private creditor debt, number one, the terms are shorter on the private creditor, so the repayment is absolutely steadfast. They're repaying. These banks down here on Wall Street have been unforgiving because of the fiduciary laws in the United States that have not loosened up at all. Again, I want to be very clear, and I say this on my podcast and people always say, why do you have to say this? I'm not saying this to defend the Chinese. I'm not doing whataboutism here. Context is really important to understand this. The IMF and the World Bank and the multilateral development banks have not done a whole lot in debt forgiveness. We have a broken system with the G20. You do not hear Global South countries complaining about their Chinese loans.
2: So you don't think that's a risk. What about it's
4: popular resentment? Popular resentment, it really depends, okay, where you are, and it gets very complicated very quickly. In Southeast Asia, the relationship with the Chinese gets tied up with ethnic politics in Southeast Asia. In places like Sri Lanka, it gets sucked up into the Indian media narratives oftentimes. It is very hard to, dis- to segregate legitimate criticism of the Chinese which is there and there's a lot of frustration in many countries with some of the super narratives that overwhelm it and that infuse it and other and it's very hard and it takes a lot of nuance to understand what is a legitimate criticism and what is uh, you know not now to Maria's point here this question of elites is the most important point Africa uncovered or uncensored, sorry, Africa Uncensored is an investigative research and, and news organization in Kenya revealed the amount of corruption in the standard gauge railway bidding process, no bid contracts, no transparency. And what we don't talk about enough in the United States, in Europe, and others is we focus on the Chinese. We should be focusing on the Africans, we should be focusing on the Sri Lankans as well who the elites who are selling out their own people with these loans. Hapendota was done because of a crappy deal between the president and the Chinese. There was no business for that deal to be done. The Chinese should be held accountable for letting that happen, but at the end of the day, it's the Sri Lankans that are responsible, and and the president made that bad deal.
3: I just wanted to add to that that when I do focus groups with elites and students, for instance, in Ethiopia, they blame their own government as opposed to China, right? So when I ask them about their distress, their concerns about China-Ethiopia relations, it's the Ethiopian government, the Ethiopian elites that get the first scorn from them, which is to me quite interesting. As they
1: should. Ethiopia, of course, is the newest or among this new batch of members in BRICS. I want to talk a, a little bit about BRICS. I know um, Eric has already made pretty clear uh, his feeling about them, that they're, it's just basically a forum for anti-American or anti-Western grievance. I, I think that's a, a pretty good and succinct way to talk about it. But I do want to ask you about the significance of the expansion. Uh, we've just seen six new countries added – I'm sorry, was it six – so no, it's, it's, let me see. Total Argentina. of eleven now. Now, right. So, so that it was BRICS. That's, five, that's right. So now six. Right. That's right. So Argentina, Ethiopia, uh, Saudi, Arabia. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and and Iran. That which is, is a weird... big
4: giant middle finger to the Americans. Okay. So yeah, it fits <laughs> into the grievance. So, so think about this. They had a choice of I think somewhere north of twelve countries to pick from in the first round of admissions. Okay, This is a consensus-based organization, which means that all five had to agree as to who would be admitted. Now, I was forecasting they're not going to dare put Iran in because that immediately makes it hostile to the United States. Because any group that has Iran, Russia, and China in it is not going to be a one that is... <laughs> But that was a giant F.U. to Washington. And that's why I say it's a grievance-based organization. That, that Lula, Lula, who's not necessarily on the extreme of the politics the way that Putin is, for example, agreed to it. Modi agreed to it. Modi was just at the White House, and he agreed to it. What does this say? And what does it say? It, it says, it's, again, for me, it says F.U., I mean, it says. So that's the new uh, acronym for the group. I mean, it? it says. And again, the larger this thing gets, the more unwieldy it gets. No group got more effective and more efficient by getting larger, especially. And then at the bottom line here, the bottom line why BRICS is meaningless as an organization is that the Indians and the Chinese, we cannot forget, have tens of thousands of troops massed on their borders with each other. The Indians just deployed the S-400 surface-to-air missile on the border facing China. These two are at each other's throat. What kind of consensus can they ever come to?
2: Well, F-U, I guess, is the consensus. But exactly.
4: <laughs> and, 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 but also that speaks Jesus, to Indian at, at politics. Fiji
1: in Uganda and Uganda. No, but, just, like, uh, that, up but, but
4: that speaks <laughs> to Indian politics, too, that they, you know, this, this myth in the United States that they're now, you know, are you know, our loyal friend and they're our democracy and, you know, they're part of the quad, I think this demonstrates that Indian foreign policy remains as autonomous
2: as it's ever been. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Let's talk, Maria, you've done a lot of work in Ethiopia, so could you talk about uh, specifically Ethiopia's inclusion in BRICS and, you know, from the point of view of of Addis Ababa, is is it just grievance politics or do you see something else there?
3: Well, I think part of it is also publicity, kind of showcasing that you're part of a club. Uh, You know, it's not just about the West or showing the FU sign to (laughs) to the United States, but also highlighting that you're welcome somewhere. Like, you're part of this bigger club of nations, very powerful countries, and they want you there. And it's really good publicity for the government that's been struck with so many crises uh, and uh, ethnic conflicts and so forth to showcase that there's, like, international legitimacy uh, to Ethiopia as well, and it has choices. I think a lot of what is being discussed here, when, you know, Eric just mentioned India, right, having its own, of course, independent foreign policy, it's about sitting on different stools having choices to move around, move across them to be able to be closer to the US but also to be part of BRICS and to kind of highlight that that's my choice I can do that and that's okay. So I think that in, in and of itself is a very important point, maybe not so much to say I'm anti-US or anti-Western but I'm able to have multiple partners in different forms and uh, with different intentions and that's alright, that like you don't have to dictate you know, where and with whom I stand
2: And together we can be anti-US. I r- remember when I first moved well, to China from South yeah. Africa yeah. one of my favorite cultural revolution era slogans was Ya la tuan chi lai mei you know, uh, Asia, Africa, and Latin America unite and uh, overturn the American imperialists. And it just felt good because it was like suddenly you when know, I came you from so a place... When did <laughs> <Gosh. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> Beijing just corrupted me. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Hey, so uh, let's move this conversation on to the, the big topic, which is, of course, discourse power, Chen, which is something that China really obsesses on. I mean, you, you remember them, you know... Uh, First rule of soft power maybe should be don't talk about soft power. But they talk about it relentlessly. They talk about you Yiuquian. I mean, there, there are some you know examples, though, of how obviously uh, Chinese uh, discourse power is still suffering badly. We've talked about the persistence of the, the debt trap diplomacy narrative, despite the best efforts of many, I think, very reputable uh, research organizations to debunk it, all the empirical evidence they've mustered. Nevertheless, it persists, it's trotted out constantly, not only by American diplomats, but also by media organizations constantly. They've clearly lost. There's nobody who will will argue that that, China's discourse power in the global north has been a rousing success. I mean, it's clumsy, it's ham-fisted, it's obvious from a mile away. It's it's just, it's frankly very embarrassing for, for someone like me who, you know, given the opportunity, might want to put the PR back in the PRC, but... It's it's not really. It's it's not. How it, long have you been wanting to say that? <laughs> it finally came out. Been sitting on that for a while. Uh, I've I've actually used it a few times, but um, but no no no. no it's a Honestly,
2: stale joke you brought to this conversation. Right, right,
1: right. But no, it's it got laughs right. right. So, you just got to know your audience. Uh, so, no, but my 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 real question is, uh, you know, it contrasts enormously though with with Chinese soft power or or Chinese you know. Uh, ability to tell China's story well in the global South. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what the difference is. Is it a difference of approach? Is it just simply uh, a, a more receptive audience? What's what are they doing differently that's meant the difference between utter abject failure and you know
3: I think a modest success?
1: Maria she is the world expert you are this, the world so expert on this a
3: lot of pressure okay so just the first point is that china does care a lot about its discourse power in the global south and one of its key concerns is that the west is a big uh, hindrance even there so even though let's say it's failing in Global North, it, there, China is also very concerned about various narratives, not only about debt trap, but neocolonialism, imperialism, all kinds of attacks on China in the Global South. It takes very seriously, and there are tons of thousands of academic articles that I've read just a selection of that literally just engage with that theme, that you know, how can the West do this to us? How can we fix this? We need to keep working on our discourse power in the Global South, especially in Africa. So that's just something that comes up as a concern. But are they successful there? I think that's also questionable. Um, One is that Chinese media is not widely watched, it's not widely consumed. And and by Chinese media, I mean state media, so CGTN, Xinhua, uh, CRI, etc. they're not, China Daily for instance gets delivered everywhere, who reads it? Almost no one, at least from my experience and from surveys and studies I've read as well, not only my own work, but uh, everything I've seen in the field suggests that it's not widely consumed. But there are other areas where it's very successful and those areas we also talked with Eric about uh, before the show is that there are a lot of content sharing agreements and localization of Chinese media kind of export or diffusion whereby local media basically cites quotes, refers to Chinese media articles throughout this coverage of China. So I was just really struck by that, you know, when I was doing interviews and asking have you heard of Xinhua? First of all, you know, like, the pronunciation is different. Like, Xinhua, I was like, well, it's Xinhua, so debate pronunciations. pronunciation is like, yeah, yeah, it's in local media, I've seen, I've seen it in the papers. It's everywhere. But you know, yeah. what is Xinhua? Like, wh- who's funding it? What's going on with it? Nobody knows. But it's quoted all over local media. So this local media kind of adaptation of Chinese uh, narratives, but also just quoting it, citing it indiscriminately, and syndicating it. And syndicating right. it. I think that's a really huge, you know, in my, in my view, quite a huge success story because it means that the story about China is being told essentially by Chinese media, but it's being publicized in local media. So it's, it's actually much and more they effective. give
2: it away for free, so for it for
3: free. makes sense yeah, for free commercial free. media. But more
4: importantly, yeah. is that a lot of that syndication? Those are those are feeds that are plugged into the websites, which are then scraped into social media, yeah. which then are repurposed to the point where people don't know what they the sources. And it just populates social media. It's pervasive.
3: And oftentimes, it's also just the ease of access to those sources. It's free, but also you don't have to report yourself. You don't have to you know, send your staff to do the story. You just take it from CGTN or Xinhua. But the other success story is also in terms of training journalists, uh, sending journalists for various trips and junkets and uh, all kinds of expeditions to China. And as a result, they're returning, not necessarily fully believing in China's story, but they are sharing that story. So they have to write about China as part of their return. Uh, many of them report very positive you know, sentiments and narratives. And they become kind of storytellers for China. That's something that I write about in my research. And that, I think, is really fascinating kind of trickling of um, of information as well that goes through human capital. You train journalists, and they come back, and they become storytellers for China.
4: A couple other things that they do which are very effective and that the West has not been able to find an answer to... Uh, They engage in media infrastructure diplomacy, Mm -hmm. so they will go up. What do you mean by that? What's media infrastructure diplomacy? Yeah, so they'll go to the Liberian Broadcasting System (LBS) and they will they'll see an old analog TV station, and they'll come in and they'll say, "We'll digitize the station, provide full coverage for the entire country." Mm -hmm. And the question then comes: Will LBS News ever run a story critical of China when they've rebuilt it? No. Why would they? Uh, It's just not the way it works. Uh, in Ghana, the Ghana News Association, which is the state-funded news association, uh, gets cameras, gets Huawei phones, gets equipment. It um, doesn't cost a lot of money, but it forms really, relationships. It, it really strong relationships mm-hmm. that does influence coverage. Um, the junkets are very important because the journalists in many countries – let's talk about uh, you know, the, you know, the, the visa discrimination that exists in the world – that if you come from a lot of countries, you cannot come to the United States. You cannot go and get a visa to go to Europe. China provides easy access Uh, that does make it more accessible as a country. And so it feeds into a lot of the sense that the the Chinese are advocating. And one other interesting point I want to bring up is the state to state media relationship. China has uh, you know, done a lot of work working with state media and in rural parts of the developing world, not the urban areas. We tend to focus on the urban areas. In rural areas, say like in Kenya, the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation is all that people get. It's two or three channels. They don't have large access to Internet and whatnot. So the narratives about China tend to be very positive. What do politicians do when they go for re-election? The same thing they do in our country. They head to the countryside. And in the countryside, they don't face any questions about China and debt and loans and the mm-hmm. criticisms because state media tends to be either ignore it or very popular about it. So um, when it comes to elections, it's really important, these state-to-state media relationships. The point here is that between what Maria and I are saying is that they're operating at multiple levels, and, the, and from the high level to the state-to-state all the way to giving some Huawei phones in a car to a local museum and bringing journalists over. And that has proven Tremendously effective.
3: And the other part of it is just how targeted the efforts are, right? So it's not just state media, but also private media and even regional media gets targeted as well. So I used to think that it's okay, it's just the state actors, they're probably pro China, but then a lot of other media also get invited for trips uh, to participate in kind of a China network. So in many ways, it's a very sophisticated effort, it's inclusive, and I think that's what Eric was talking about accessibility. You know, China is accessible, visa is easy to get, everything is arranged within days. And you're thinking about, you know, for us to go to China, it's often quite complex to get everything in order, but for this visits, they happen within days. All logistics are taken care of.
4: But let's talk just very quickly on narrative here. Very quickly. Very quickly. The the, the most powerful narrative that the Chinese have, and as those of us who've been in China since the 90s can attest to it, China in 1990, 1989, when I first went there, was poorer than most African countries. In my lifetime, China has gone to being the second largest economy. That is an incredibly powerful narrative to developing countries. And it works. Exactly, yeah.
3: <laughs> it works. <laughs> I mean, it really <laughs>
4: does. But, I mean, again, for people who come from those countries to say, it is possible mm. to make that jump. So that infrastructure porn that they put out on Twitter it is works. very, very porn. powerful. Infrastructure <laughs> porn.
2: Um, so speaking of uh, such um, uh, things. You're um, blushing. <laughs> Eric, I had no idea you'd bring a subject like this up. Um, What about misinformation and disinformation? Because the US State Department um, recently, uh, the Global Engagement Center, released a report where it accused China of all kinds of nefarious deeds, influence, uh, and uh, operations, uh, misinformation, and disinformation. Of course, the official Chinese response was to call America an empire of lies, which was a rather delicious phrase. (laughs) What do you you make (laughs) of of this? Chen Huihua said that, didn't he? Um, I think it actually was a Ron Paul quote. <laughs> uh, ne-
4: underneath the Chen Wei huas uh, AI-generated photo that he had that day. Information,
1: do you want to do that one? Okay, so Well first of all, talk about what this Global Engagement Center is, the State Department's initiative. It started... <laughs> so this is their, you know, it's a very
4: controversial thing. It started in 2016... Uh, to attack what I think the, the favorite word of the State Department is malign actors. The word malign comes up more in Washington than I've ever heard ever in my life. Um, and so they've got their list of malign actors, which I think, is, as far as I know, the list starts with Russia and ends with China, and that's basically... and Maybe North Korea gets in there, I don't know. Iran, Iran probably gets in there, too. Um, and so this Global Engagement Center is basically this extraordinarily expensive operation to write research reports that i don 't know anybody actually pays any attention to because oh well, we are right now, <laughs> well, I know but it's kind of ridiculous because it's it's incredibly partisan analysis, so it 's not the kind of research that Maria would do where you know it, it's much more pro- balanced in that respect that being said
1: um, <sighs> I don't you're, know how you. You're, you're that saying it is. it's propaganda. Actually. Well, it you is. Of know. course, it's well, state-generated. Well, you know, I mean, uh, it is. But that's uh, fine. Let's let's move on then. I mean, if we can dismiss it, I think we should. But you know, you said the but kind I, of I, but the that findings Maria are not. The, 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 there's stuff in their reports which
4: are legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. It's just you have to consider the source and filter through the agenda of the United States. It just well, also, so
1: happens that Maria today published a piece in in what journal was it? I'm sorry. It's
3: for the Wilson Center.
1: For the Wilson Center, about the convergence between media strategies between china and russia and so talk about that To what extent have they converged to what extent are there limits to that convergence are they still divergent in important ways are they still is it important to point out the ways in which they differ? I mean, yeah, I, I, I just
3: I just wanted to briefly state that the Global Engagement Center they mostly focus on Russia truth, which is interesting. I think a lot of their reports okay. are about Russia. Just you know, they, I think they're starting to catch up on China, but Russia is their main focus as the malign actor. So just to, to highlight that. So, but in terms of convergence of Russia and China, in the information domain, uh, there are several things that I've been analyzing. Uh, one is that they're institutionalizing their media relations, which means that their committees formed, a specific committee that meets regularly to discuss media relations, information sharing, uh, norm and so forth but basically trying to establish very good contacts with between state journalists in Russia and China and kind of to socialize them to become you know more friendly to each other uh, and as a result uh oh wow okay This is a little intimidating. This is not good, not good. (laughs) Like, what's happening? So So these these meetings, you know, until COVID, uh, they took place very regularly, and they are very large-scale summits where there are high-level officials from both countries. Uh, They were in charge of media regulation, media policy, as well as journalists and editors from state media mostly, who are meeting and talking to each other. Um, And there's also quite a bit of content co-production, which means that they're producing content on each other's platforms. And I have to note that uh, it seems that China is getting a better deal here, because they often get more access to Russian media market, and as a result, Eurasian market, because a lot of you know, uh, resident citizens of Central Asian countries, for instance, they watch Russian media, and China places a lot of content in that media, especially on television channels and stations, whereas, I think, Russia is not getting quite as much audiences in China. So there's a bit of a symmetry, I think. Overall, of course, it's an asymmetric relationship, and the media relationship part of it is also unequal. That's something that I've been analyzing. And then I looked at the last year, or year and a half of uh, Russia's war with Ukraine, and I found that during this year, uh, we see quite a bit of favorable, mutually favorable coverage in Russian and Chinese state media. So what happens with Russian media, they really praise China in terms of various aspects of its development, success, and so forth. But Chinese media tends to take a pro-Russia, called the pro-Russia tilt, when it comes to coverage of Russia's war in Ukraine. So really kind of various ways in terms of uh, aligning with Russia softly, um, you know, oftentimes reposting their narrative, citing their media. So there's quite a bit of convergence when it comes to how they actually report about each other in their own media. So it seems like this institutionalization, their meetings, all the summits, they're working to some extent because the reporting becomes more and more favorable when it comes to how they talk about each other and to each other's audiences, which, of course, creates a buffer for the relationship to go on.
1: I'm really hungry, aren't you guys? I, 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 unfortunately, yeah. we need to wind down a little bit, but uh, there's so many more questions I'd love to be able to ask, but there is one thing that I do want to get, get before we get to recommendations, which we cannot, absolutely cannot skip, but, um, and that is that our conference tomorrow, Next China, is, is all about what China wants. So there's one question, I think, that a lot of people are, are wondering. Does China want to export its developmental model to the, the global south? Is it push? Is it pull? Is it some combination thereof? Is it proactive? I'm, I'm wondering what your, your takes are on this, and maybe you can start, Eric. It does see
4: itself as the leader of the global south. It sees itself as a model Um, it is not promoting itself in the way that it's imposing its model. So any conditionalities on loans, for example, to follow what they're doing. But you'll see in a lot of local media how a professor at a university in Ghana or a delegation from Algeria went and praised the Chinese model of development, and, and it's a perfect example for what we can do here in our country and whatnot. And that, of course, is promoted by Chinese narrative. So they really do see themselves as this statist the state-led model, this idea that universal values are Western values, this this promotion of state sovereignty. So for example, in the new cyber laws in Nigeria, uh, the new uh, you know the, the data hosting center that came up in Senegal, that is all based on Chinese internet cyber law in terms of the nationalization of data and not necessarily making it a universal value. So those are real differences. On human rights, for example, this idea of social and economic rights taking precedent over civil and political rights, uh, these are narratives that they do. But it's not a again this heavy-handed type of you know we're, we're going to push.
1: It, it is it's a it's a more subtle kind of right. Pull. When you were talking about media strategies, the same thing came to mind. It's it's like is that really on China? I mean, isn't that the same sorts of things that we do? We call public diplomacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and so I, I wonder. Uh, there is some confusion. I think it's important that we all think about, is this push, is this pull? We might object to push. Can we object to pull? Right. So, Maria, what, what do you think? Uh, is, do you largely agree with Eric? Do you have other thoughts about
3: Well, I think the China model that's being kind of promoted in certain ways is that there is no model. You know, it's it's up to you to choose your own path towards development or path of development. Don't be, you know, listening to anyone, choose your own way. That's often what Chinese government officials tell uh, as part of those trainings. So they're not really giving a coherent story. Here's how you develop, here's how you overcome poverty and so forth. They're sharing their successful governance practices, uh, but those successes are shared in oftentimes very quantitative forms, lots of statistics and data and graphs, here's what we've done, here's what we've succeeded in. Of course, it's a very linear story, it's almost everything was going well for you know many many years and it's mostly state led story as well many things are overlooked there but I don't think they're providing coherent model when it comes to here's what you should do and in fact it was ironic in a recent workshop that I attended where somebody from the receiving side was asking can you give us more lessons we want to understand how to do what you do especially when it comes to rural governance and poverty alleviation and the respondent said we don't give lessons to our African brothers so the response was kind of like we don't want to teach you. Like you, you, find your own path. You know, we're kind of we could be an inspiration, but it's really we're all not going to
2: give you a lecture. We're going to build a yeah, hospital. Exactly.
3: Yeah, pretty much. We're con- con- concluding on that circuious note. You know, we're not like the West, right? So we're not going to be lecturing you. You find your own path, but we are one potential inspiration for you. Right. So I think inspiration is probably a better way to see it than a model, because a model kind of presumes something coherent and that has certain kind of a structured way to go about it. But I don't think that's what they're really offering.
1: Tomorrow afternoon at Next China, Barry, our good colleague who is from Africa himself, will be interviewing these same two wonderful guests uh, in a kind of to be continued. I mean, there's a lot, there's a little bit of overlap, but there's also a lot of other issues that he's going to be exploring in great depth with you. I invite you all to join for that. It's going to be outstanding. It's going to be really, really excellent. Um, Meanwhile, do you want to ask that one last question that we had about uh, the United States and its efforts to sort of challenge Chinese growing Chinese supremacy in the global south or do you think we can save that for berries we'll save that for berries we'll save that for berries that's a long answer let me let me uh, then ask you you to to thank my two guests Maria Repnikova and Eric Olander and (laughs) And, and let's move to, to the recommendation segment of the show, which is always something that uh, I know our, our, our faithful listeners always look forward to. And uh, as is our old tradition, Jeremy, why don't you start? What do you have for us?
2: Uh, a podcast called Empire uh, by the historian and author William Del Rumpel uh, and uh, uh British radio presenter Anita Anand. So two children of the British Empire, one uh, Cambridge-educated Brit, uh, one uh, woman of Indian origin. So colonizer and colonized. Yes, exactly. And it's an amazing podcast about uh, the history of various empires. Bill most recent book was called Anarchy, which is about the British East India Company, which was the tiny private corporation that actually colonized India. And yeah, they yeah. have the, both of them, this is a, a, an encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of history. But it's particularly interesting right now because so many of the problems we face in the world right now, or, you know, in the Middle East particularly, I've been thinking about actually... Uh, have their origin in uh, mistakes that were made by the British Empire and other colonial powers. And this does a great job of showing you these uh, extraordinary moments when sometimes one guy with a map in London and a pen, you know, we're still living with the after effects.
1: I love it when you recommend podcasts, but I do have to say before you subscribe to William Dalrymple's uh, Empire's podcast, please first... Subscribe yes. No. No. To China and the global <laughs> I should have recommended China that. And Africa <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those, <laughs> those this is my marketing department. And also,
2: Seneca, please. If, <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're, they all subscribe if you're a casual Seneca, listener out oh there. <laughs> all right, Maria, you're next. What do you have for
3: us? Well, I was told to offer something light, but I'm not a very light person, so I will offer a slightly heavier recommendation, which is uh, but a very beautiful book called "A Day in the Life of Abed Salama." Um, it's by Nathan Thrall, and it's a book about Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But essentially, it's a really story of um, yeah, it's a story of Palestinians mostly. Their story of uh, occupation, and it's a really just beautifully told story at a very human level. Uh, the author himself is Jewish. He resides in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, and the book came out right before the war started. So it's was just there incredible. A New Yorker
1: article that was based on a long excerpt. From it was
3: that? New Yorker, I think, a review of books. New Yorker review of oh, books. Oh, yeah. Oh, so he had a piece I remember it. there, I remember and then it. I he traced it. the family. It's a nonfiction. He traces an accident, a bus accident, where unfortunately a lot of kids die, and he traces their stories and kind of through that lens, historic stories about um, Israel's uh, politics in Palestine. So it's really just a very beautiful book, it, it kind of takes your breath away and I really recommend it in light of the current um, world we're living in.
1: I remember recommending that that article mm. at the same time that I recommended another one about uh, an Uyghur mm. uh, living in, in, I don't remember which city, but I think it was in, in uh, the southern Xinjiang, uh, who the, the parallels of the experience of repression mm. uh, were really, really sort of striking mm. to me. Interesting. Uh, and this the, the Uyghur person also had the initials AR, oh. I remember. Uh, And I I thought that was just sort of the universe talking to me. It was uh, very, very good. All right.
4: Uh, Eric, what do you have for us? There is a fantastic, I mean, just incredible new documentary called Eat Bitter, which is making the rounds of the film festival circuit, which will eventually make it out of the film festival circuit. Here in New York, it's going to play on November 9th. It is the story of a... Chinese construction manager and the sand diver, a sand diver in the Central African Republic, and two men at opposite ends of the construction business in Africa, in the Central African Republic. It was directed by, co-directed actually, by a young Chinese female director and a young Central African female director. So we don't get a lot of African and Chinese voices on this narrative. We also don't get a lot of female voices on this narrative, and we don't get a lot of youth, female, African, and Chinese voices on this narrative. This movie, more than anything that I've seen in the 15 years that I've been covering China Africa issues, humanizes the China Africa relationship. We've talked about China and Africa and these broad, you know, these sweeping generalizations that flatten the diversity of both. And this movie is very, very powerful at humanizing and showing the texture in the relationship that's really important, I think, for all of us to understand.
1: Fantastic recommendation. I can't wait to see that. That sounds really, really, really great. Um, my recommendation is going to be light. It's for a novel. It's called uh, Wellness. I
3: knew you are going to recommend it.
1: Really? <laughs> it's just such a great book. It's by a, uh, an author named Nathan Hill. His last book was really well-received. It was called The Knicks. Uh, this novel, it it, it it focuses on a couple who meet and fall in love in uh, the Wicker Park neighborhood of Chicago, and it's really sort of centered on Wicker Park between the years roughly 1993 and, you know, the, the just about maybe a decade ago. So it takes us into the age of social media and into the age of, of bizarre Facebook conspiracy theory and, and stuff. So. But uh, at, at its heart, it's obviously a love story, uh, but it also, you know, is it's about parenting and it's about video game addiction, it's about, um, it's about everything. Two, two things side. you know about. <laughs> two things I, I know very little about. No, um, it, it's, it's a fantastic book, I highly recommend it. It's actually Oprah's book club book, I think, uh, this month, which uh, I don't know, that's neither here nor there, but I mean, it, it is very good and I think a lot of people will be reading it and talking about it, it's excellent. Uh, so please check it out. I also want to do one self-serving recommendation since we are talking about uh, on, uh, on November eighth, a film that I've been working on for a very long time will debut on PBS's long-running science show Nova. It's called Inside China's Tech Boom. Uh, it is an hour-long uh, documentary that I am the correspondent, narrator, and one of the producers on. Uh, and it's uh, there's a, a great cast of characters. Some people who are in this room appear in this documentary, so uh, you should check it out. I think it, you'll uh, you'll find it. A very balanced look at how china became the the technology in innovation giant that it, it is and it also makes a real case for the importance of of manufacturing i think uh and why it's important that we reshore and, and reestablish the capability to manufacture technology goods here in the united states so uh please check it out it, and it will we're actually if you're in, in new york now but if you're here on november 14th it's a free event at the Asia Society, uh, where I will be joined by the director, a brilliant, talented director named David Borenstein, who, like me, spent a lot of time in China and had kind of a career in music there. He's an outstanding saxophone player. Anyway, David and I, as well as Ray Ma, who many of you know as the former host of our uh, uh, technology podcast... Check it out. Uh, We're all going to be there in in conversation about the, the tech scene in China. With that, one more round of applause for Maria Repnikova and Eric Olander. Thank you so much for being here.